Prestige heads, and welcome to your bonus weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison. Um, and we're really excited about this episode because, you know, this is one of the big things that have that has defined the culture of left-wing foreign policy thinking and anti-imperialism for the last 30 years. And and that's really the JFK assassination. And uh, to talk about it, uh, I thought it would make sense, we thought it would make sense to bring on an expert, and that is Aaron Good, a political scientist, the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, and host of the new American Exception podcast. And really, check that out. Aaron, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Um, so why don't we just start at the beginning? What got you interested in the JFK assassination, uh, all of the conspiracy theories, and why do you think that it's important for people to pay attention to this? You know, because some of our more normie listeners might just think, you know, it's a rabbit hole. You'll never find anything. Maybe something happened. Maybe something didn't. But who cares anyway? So what got you interested, and why should someone care about this? Well, it's it goes pretty far back because I saw the film JFK in the theater when it came out because a friend of mine, his name is Ben Motes, and his parents, I, I spent the night at his house, and they were like, let's go see a movie. It was JFK. And they knew that I was interested in politics. My mom worked for a Democratic congressman. And that movie was really a big deal at the time, so we just went to the theater and saw it. And so I was like maybe tw- uh, 12, 13, and it was a long movie, but it didn't seem long to me. It kind of blew my mind. And my part of the reason I think was, or, or not, it's, it's a very well done movie. If it was, if it was totally based on fiction, like they, not, like not events that didn't even happen, it would be very entertaining. But the historical part makes it more compelling. And the Vietnam angle for me was really significant because my mom had protested the Vietnam War, and she worked for a Democratic congressman, and her job was mm-hmm. to get benefits for people with PTSD and things like that. And so she would talk about the war, and I it. I, it just seemed like the most evil, violent, uh, horrific thing that my government was involved in. And I already was very suspicious of Reagan and such because we were like good sort of liberal left Democrats, at least my mom was. And so I really thought that it seemed plausible because if they would slaughter this many peasants living in huts and shit halfway across the world, it couldn't possibly be a, a threat to them. Why wouldn't they kill the president? And all of this business with Oswald seemed implausible. So it, it kind of stuck in my head that this that there was something really sinister there. But then I w- would only read occasionally articles about it and didn't think about it a whole lot. I asked my favorite professor in college what he thought about it. And he was he just said, oh, I think Oswald did it. And I, I think that that's sort of a it's kind of a metaphysical thing for uh, a- academics in the mainstream, because it's something that if you acknowledge it, then you're not then you have to acknowledge also that we're not really living in a in a democracy, that it's some kind of managed totalitarianism with a democratic facade. And if you acknowledge that, then all of the pluralism and positivism of political science and all of this obsession with, uh, you know, s- the statistical ritual that characterizes political science, all of that is nonsense. And so uh, you can see why 
you, the magic bullet is absurd, but like you can see why people would be but like... But Aaron, just to be fair to academics, though, I would say at this point, um, maybe not in political science, <laughs> I'm not a political scientist, but certainly at least in the historical profession, I don't think there's many illusions about the United States being some paradigmatic democracy. Uh, I mean, in diplomatic history, um, it's the assumption that it's empire um, and that the United States is an empire, has been an empire from the beginnings with Western expansion, um, you know, manifest destiny, followed by the Monroe Doctrine, followed by the War of 1898, followed by the American globalism in World War II. Um, so maybe that's more true in political science than it is in history. But I just want to, uh, sorry to interrupt, I just want to give the historians their due here even the most mainstream of mainstream use the term this, american empire you know this is this is true and history is better than political science political science is quite a historical and really really <laughs> ridiculous i'm sorry i have a doctorate in it but i would also say that you're the you're sort of the talking about the new left or william appleman williams kind of perception of of history or also like the national like leffler and the national security approach right and those people kind of acknowledge empire to varying degrees. Leffler tries to sort of reconcile it and say, oh, but it's about national security. It's not really about capitalism driving but it. But I would say since the cultural turn in the 1990s, um, I, it's pretty standard, you know, that it's an empire. I think cultures of American imperialism, If um, it's the, the Donald Pease, uh, I think Amy Katz volume is um, was, was very influential here. But it, I would say at, at this point, it's... Um, it's standard, but that, I mean, that's certainly not political. Right. And, well, Amy Kaplan, not Amy Katz. Sorry. Even, even after nine 11, you had neocons basically saying like, yeah, we're an empire and, and we got to deal with it. Right. So it's, I, I wouldn't, I, it's true that there's more of an acknowledgement of empire, though not necessarily a real uh, unpacking or agreed upon definition of what that even means. But let's get back to JFK. Sorry. Yeah, this could, this could go us in a different direction. Right. Yeah. I could, I could talk about, I wrote, I had to write about this stuff to do lit reviews and stuff for my book. So it was like, I can talk about it, but it might be less, it might be a little tedious. <laughs> Sorry, Derek, you had something to say? <laughs> no, I was just, I was laughing because uh, I was reminded this week, perusing Twitter, uh, that the political science profession is still doing the thing where we arbitrarily rate everybody's democracy and give it a number, like oh, 1 yeah. to 10. And then we, we should do American prestige democracy rankings. Call it an objective ranking. <laughs> Derek, <laughs> let's end the year with the, democracy rankings. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> Let's this rank every country in the world. Things in the in in the whole academic sphere really is the 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 rankings, the democracy, now, for, like, and freedom. How house. hot is my democracy? Yeah, I like Freedom House also being the one to do it. But sorry, let's get back, Aaron. So, so it's obviously clear you're a young guy. It, it's clear that you know people aren't acknowledging something that's that seems obviously fishy. So maybe you could then go to like, what do you think, just from a meta level, before we get into the details. Well, I'll, I'll say I'll try to wrap up quickly how I came back to JFK, which yes, was I I went I had got a political science degree, didn't really know mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. Went to Taiwan, taught English for a year uh, over there. Came back with a little bit of money, just saved up, and I um, was did worked a lot number of jobs while my my future wife finished graduate school, uh, and then in 2008 I got a job for the Obama campaign, and you know it was a one of the, it's a campaign job, so it's like you work around the clock basically it's horrible exploitative but but kind of exciting at the same time and he wins and i go to the inauguration and i'm thinking like okay this is good they're they're going to go after people for torturing and it, because the other the other people are in the other party they're going to go after them because they committed horrible crimes and this is going to be a positive thing well 
they don't go after them. Instead, Obama says, well, we tortured some folks. Well, you got to look forward, not backward. And I was like, and I thought, that's not good. And then this Honduras, <laughs> this Honduras coup happens. And then I was like, and then Obama kind of like looks the other way and they pretend it wasn't a coup. And I was like, oh, my God. And I had read like around 04, between 04 and 06, I read things like All the Shah's Men, Overthrow mm-hmm. by Stephen Kinzer, which are kind of liberal normie critiques of U.S. foreign policy. And Michael Sullivan wrote a similar academic book. And I happened to meet him because I taught at the school where his son went and he was an alum and he came back and donated that book to the library. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. So I knew foreign policy, but I still was kind of a schmuck and worked for Obama. And then once he turned out to be George Bush, but like a, a woke, you know, more, more diversity. And he, he's a legalist of- George Bush. That's how I describe him. He's a legalist George W. Bush. Yeah, it, that, that's, that's fair. And, and he, um, he didn't do these things. And so I thought, man, what is, there's something worse here that they could perpetrate a fraud like this on me and, and make me work so hard for this. And they, they tricked me and that's not cool. And so <laughs> around that time, I also saw Oliver Stone go on Bill Maher and he was talking about JFK and the unspeakable. And I thought, well, you know, I should read some more history books and maybe I'll go to grad school or something and think about that. So I read that book and I, I, I read it in a few days. It was really compelling. And then I was just convinced like, man, it's not just that they killed Kennedy it's like it's it's obvious given what's actually known like that they did it and that they have and and why they did it when you look at what Johnson did and that this our institutions are not capable of dealing with this and that that's just something profound about the system that we live in and that it can't just be like oh maybe it was the Russians maybe it was the Illuminati you know maybe it was the Cubans who knows it's a wacky fun game like who shot JR and it's like, no, it's actually not, it's not fun. It's pretty serious. And it's, it, it, it says something important about our system that is so, uh, in, you know, huge in its magnitude that people want to turn away from it, I think. At least that's what I've come to conclude. Let's pause on that for a second, because I think it'll be important to make the argument about why this matters. Because I think even there might be people who who are sympathetic to the idea that this is kind of fishy, um, you know, but... No one, no one says the American. I mean, few people who are observant today, even even liberals, I've found in the last five six years, um, no one really says like this is like the, the the grand force for good in the world. And you know that wasn't true when JFK the movie came out, particularly right after the end of the Cold War, where I think it, it was a very important you know voice in the wilderness, almost claiming that maybe U.S. foreign policy or the national security state isn't the most positive thing in the world. But in twenty twenty one. When, when the illusions have been more stripped from our eyes, why is the JFK issue still relevant? Well, it's important in terms of the being able to look at the history of the U.S. after World War II and this empire that was created and the nature of that empire and the way that that empire and that project is managed domestically and internationally. And when you look at what, if you, when you look at the departures uh, of the Kennedy administration from the sort of uh, Truman, Atchison, Eisenhower, Dulles consensus, and then there's JFK's attempt to steer things in a different way and to end the Cold War. Yeah, we're going to get into that. This is this is the fun then, stuff. We're going to get into this in a second, yeah. And the violent swing back with Johnson afterwards, then it, it, it says a lot uh, about the way that the U.S. emerged as a supposedly anti-imperial power, presided over some kind of decolonization, and then there was a conflict in the establishment. JFK represented the more progressive side of that over whether this was going to be decolonization or neocolonization. 
And the neo-colonial forces won out. And so it, you, you see the results of that with the Johnson administration and the, uh, the administrations that follow. So this we're going to get into this in a second because it, it is my opinion that um, JFK might have been, and I think on the more progressive side of, of the NATSEC state, I think that's probably correct. But it's almost like, uh, you know, that famous Dorothy Parker quote about Catherine Hepburn, that she ran the whole gamut of emotions from A to B. I feel like that's what we're talking about a little bit when we're talking about national security figures. Like, yeah, JFK is more progressive, but what does that really mean within this context? But we'll get to that in a second, because I want um, to hear just what do you think happened? <laughs> uh, who, 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 did the, who did the conspiracy? Why, why was it done? And then we could get into sort of the details. So Aaron, feel free to go off on this. Tell, tell people who, who last thing they've paid attention to was Stone's JFK. What do you think actually happened? Or what does the evidence suggest actually happened in your opinion? Okay. I think that in terms of nailing down who was the actual shooter or who it was that was greenlighting the whole thing, that that is not information that will be known. I, I think that at the top, I, I've come to this conclusion, and it's it's interesting how little is written about this, but I, I've had these exchanges with a Swedish academic named Ola Tanander, who wrote the first article in the West, really, on the, the deep state of the West. And he writes about secrecy and different levels of secrecy and his experiences with people in the Swedish government and what they told him and what different people told him, like Arthur Schlesinger, or sorry, James Schlesinger, who used to be the CIA director, and and other figures that he's spoken to about how decisions are, are made at the at the very top. And he says that when you get higher, there's a certain level of super secrecy that's largely only verbal. And even, even below that, there's a level of secrecy where they can disappear secrets and really restrict who has access to secrets and so on, such that it, it allow it opens up a dark space of for for top-down power to exist and function in a nominally democratic society. And just want to add, just very quickly, this isn't about a nominally democratic society, but to some degree, this reminds me of the the controversy over the so-called Hitler Befell, which is like the Hitler order to like do a Holocaust, which has never been found, right? Because I just want to say that I think at a lot of states, at the upper, upper, upper echelons, a lot of stuff is done verbally. And a lot of stuff is done with like like literal nods. You know, like literal, like unexchanges. So I, I just want to say, I think this is a, um, a characteristic of power, right? You're not yes. writing everything down. So I just wanted to, to make that point. Sorry to interrupt. C- civilization. Civilization is, is the key here. And that's where it isn't about being so particularly anti-American. It's a conflict of civilization and the way that a hierarchical order is maintained in an organized society, you know, which is synonym for civilization, right? And it's, it, it's been that way. The history of civilization is largely a history of despotism with progress and then the also the reassertion of sort of top-down well, it you depends know, if you if forces. you agree with the new David Graeber Wengrow book, I guess, because that's providing a whole new. But that's that's neither here there, nor there. There yeah. is that other side of it. It's only civilization and the organized efforts of humanity can improve things. So it's not purely exploitation, but it's there right. is that force and there is that top down hierarchy and there is that violence that has that has existed. Uh, you know, coterminously with the uplifting things that we think of as progress. It's the dialectic, if you will. <laughs> I try to avoid that, uh, but yes, you could, in a way you could say that. 
All right. So, so, okay. So uh, upper echelons, let's get back to Jay. Oh, who did it with Kennedy? Well, I think that there was an agreement among the military brass. It was, and the economic overworld of corporate power. So, so like could David we actually be specific? Because like when you say the military brass, um, that, that could mean a million people. You, uh, uh, so maybe we could be specific, not even with necessarily who, but sort of like the class. Cause I don't think McCone for example, was no. uh, necessarily involved in it. I don't right? think he was in the loop at all. Right. So maybe we could, could you just be a little specific when you say military brass, who specifically we're referring to? Same with the economic. You know, you don't, we don't need like eight, these eight people, but like the class of people. Okay. Mid range yeah, officers. Yeah. So think of C. Wright Mills, power elite, and his, the way that he spoke about the military metaphysic that prevailed among politicians and national security people, and also obviously in the ranks of the military. So, I would say people like Lyman Lemnetzer, um, Thomas Powers. Could you Curtis explain Lim- who they are? So for people, Lyman Lemnitzer was Kennedy's former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was such a, a lunatic that Kennedy uh, sent him, demoted him, or fired him as the chairman of the JCS and put in Max Taylor, and then sent Lemnitzer to command NATO, which was a problem because NATO was also where Gladio was. And so this also put Limnitzer at the top of a military intelligence hierarchy that had connections to all of the assassins of, of Europe and ex and former Nazis and so on. And so not, not good, nor was it good for him to send, uh, to fire or demote, um, Harvey, you know, Bill Harvey and send him to Rome, the Rome station, because, you can get into a lot of mischief in Rome, and he was a, a kind of a psycho. He ran the assassination programs in Cuba until he was fired, and and Cuba and with you know Italy P two and all of that that allowed him to do some networking probably. So people like Lyman Lemnitzer, um, and I would this is very controversial, and I I this but it's also what John Newman thinks and what Peter Dale Scott has long suspected that Max Taylor may have been a pivotal person in this in in these kind of military consensus or near consensus about the fact that JFK had had to go. And before we get into that, or, or rather, as we're doing that, why does the military want to take JFK out according to so and, and be specific on the years. So just to give like, are we talking 61, 62? What when when is this? So Kennedy gets into office in January 61. Yes, he fires these people for a variety of reasons. We don't Bay, need to go Bay into pig stuff. So Bay of Pigs happens, planned and laid Eisenhower, executed by Kennedy because Kennedy's told that he is going, that this is a good plan. Uh, Kennedy does not provide air support to the invading exiles. They are forced to retreat. Uh, It's a huge embarrassment and a huge disaster. So we're starting there. So then Kennedy demotes several people. They're, they're, you know, head of NATO, going to Rome. Uh, Now, what is going on? Yeah, Uh, he fires uh, three of the top people at the CIA, including most significantly Alan Dulles who was instrumental in the creation of the CIA and was Mr. Sullivan and Cromwell, kind of like one of the founders of the post-war American deep state and the, and the clandestine side of it. And he also fires, um, Charles Cabell and, um, he fires, uh, he fires Cabell and Bissell, 
uh, Bissell as well. Richard right? Bissell, Top yeah. CIA guys, yeah. And the, the yeah, so these are of, people, just, just to give context, these are people who were involved in the 1950s, really the height of the American rollback effort where you get, you know, the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh, the overthrow of Yaqob Benz. For my own research, I found that the CIA was seemed to have been pretty involved with uh, inspiring the East German uprising in 1953. Um, you get all of these covert activities in the 1950s. So Kennedy comes into office in January 61, April 61, one is the Bay of Pigs, and after he essentially sets about to re uh, reorganizing the um, intelligence apparatus, and at the same time bringing in a bunch of what were called at the time eggheads from places like the Rand Corporation, from places like Harvard. You know these educated elites. So there's a reorganization of the intelligence apparatus under Kennedy, right? And he also brings with him about. 20, maybe 23 people, around a couple dozen people who had worked in the past for the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. So his administration is full of people that might not share his vision. And a lot of them are antithetic, you know, or diametrically opposed to what he he really is trying to do. And so he tries well, so to this is, ways around, this it, is my, around some of them. Let's get into this. What is he trying to do? In your, pers- what, in your opinion, what do you view Kennedy? Because I'm very skeptical of Kennedy, the peacenik argument, extremely skeptical of that. Um, I don't think he would have necessarily escalated in Vietnam to the degree that Johnson did, even though I do think that's an open question. But I, th- I think Kennedy was um, more aware let's say, of of the the horrors of American empire in the 50s in particular before he was president. He made some like promising statements about, you know, nationalism and you'll never be able to overcome nationalism. But I do think that there were structural pressures and we'll get into the specifics of this on the Vietnam question in particular. But I think, you know, stabilizing American hegemony is not necessarily Kennedy the peacenik. So could you lay out your argument for why you think this was a semi-revolutionary action on Kennedy? Because this, to be frank, I'm personally skeptical. Well, Kennedy, when he takes office, has already made statements in support of third world nationalism in places like Algeria and Vietnam. He was so far out there on against the French imperialism that Adlai Stevenson you know, all the editorials in, in America were condemning Kennedy for saying these things in the, in the Senate. And Adlai Stevenson even came out against him and said that, you know, you've gone too far with this, uh, you know, being against French, uh, US, the U.S. support of the French empire. And African nationalists like Kwame Nkrumah and Patrice Lumumba, he supported. And bef- when Kennedy is elected, it appears that there's reason to believe that that is what led them to expedite the already greenlit efforts to assassinate Lumumba. And so Lumumba is assassinated and Kennedy doesn't know about this. Kennedy finds out uh, because I believe it's Adelaide Stevenson that calls him and and tells him. And then there's that famous picture of Kennedy uh, getting the phone call and looking very despondent about that. And so So, he sets about trying to stabilize the Congo and continue their their sort of independence and not let them get dominated by the Belgians and the British. So let me just read Logoval on this, because I think Logoval is actually kind of sympathetic to this position. Um, But I think it's important to get sort of all, you know, let's just say the mainstream side. So I'm just going to read this for a second. So just please uh, bear with me. So uh, this is Logoval, quote. Already in the fall of 1951, when as a 34-year-old congressman, he visited Indochina during the midst of the Franco-Vietnamese War, Kennedy saw through the French expressions of bravado and optimism and asked hard questions about whether France, or by extension any Western power, could ever thwart Ho Chi Minh's revolutionary cause. 
In his trip diary and in a speech to a Boston audience after this return, he lamented that the United States had attached herself to the, quote, desperate effort, unquote, of the French to hang on to their colonial hold in Southeast Asia, an effort almost certain to fail, to act, quote, apart from and in defiance of innately nationalistic aims spells foredoomed failure, unquote, JFK told the Boston gathering, adding that a free election would in all likelihood go to hoe and the communists. In the spring of 1954, when the French war effort collapsed, with the French war effort collapsing, now Senator Kennedy supported a proposed international effort to try to save the Western position in Indochina through a concept called United Action, but at the same time feared where such a policy would lead the nation, quote, to pour money, materiel, and men into the jungles of Indochina without at least a remote prospect of victory would be dangerously futile and destructive, unquote, he declared. For that matter, would the United States ever be able to make much difference in that part of the world? Quote, no amount of American military assistance can conquer an enemy which is everywhere and at the same time nowhere, an enemy of the people which has the sympathy and covert support of the people, unquote. No satisfactory result was possible, Kennedy concluded, unless Paris accorded into China full and complete independence without a sufficient indigenous, um, full, uh, full and complete independence. Without it, sufficient indigenous support would remain forever out of reach. So this is Logoval in a book, that, uh, basically an essay for a volume um, called, I think, Kennedy and What Might Have Been for uh, that was a companion to the Ken Burns Novick documentary is saying. So at this point, he's like, yes, Kennedy is pretty you know, skeptical. But here, let's go on. This is Logoval again. Later in the decade, as he began eyeing a, eyeing a White House run, Kennedy moved closer to Cold War orthodoxy. He now spoke less of nationalistic aims in the French analogy and more of falling dominoes and the urgent need to thwart communist aggression. But the skepticism did not go away. It was always there just beneath the surface. Sometimes he expressed it openly. As in 1957, when he went well beyond official U.S. policy in supporting Algeria in her war of independence against France, unquote, the most powerful single force in the world today, unquote, he declared in a Senate speech on the North African crisis that summer, quote, is neither communism nor capitalism, neither the H-bomb nor the guided missile. It is man's eternal desire to be free and independent, unquote. Washington must respond effectively to this hunger, he went on, which meant urging French leaders to pursue negotiations leading to Algerian independence. In early 1961, Kennedy, now president, deflected the urgings by his predecessor Dwight D. Eisenhower that he intervene militarily in Laos where the anti-communist position had eroded significantly over the previous two years and where the North Vietna uh, Vietnamese supported Path at Lao now seemed on the cusp of victory. Some senior Kennedy A's likewise advocated using major military power in Laos, but he demurred, opting instead to pursue a diplomatic settlement. Um, and then I'll just end here. That fall, JFK resisted AIDS calls for committing U.S. ground forces to Vietnam to counter recent Viet Cong games. General Maxwell Taylor, his most important military aide, remarked at a meeting among other principals on November 6th that the president was, quote, instinctively against introduction of U.S. forces, unquote, a point noted as well by General Lyman Lemonser, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, at another session a few days later. In a November 15th meeting of the National Security Council, JFK expressed a desire to keep the American commitment limited. Whereas Korea in 1950 was a case of clear aggression, he remarked, the situation in Vietnam 
was, quote, more obscure and less fragrant, unquote, flagrant, unquote. One could even, quote, make a rather strong case against intervening in an area 10,000 miles away against 16,000 guerrillas with a native army of 200,000, where millions have been spent for years with no success, unquote. So Logoval is here. I think one of the mainstream positions is actually supporting uh, this issue. So uh, what do you... Um, so and, and then sorry, I just want to want to uh, read one more thing. So there's some skepticism here, and this is I think really important. Uh, and then I'm going to end on this one. So there is all this skepticism about Kennedy, but here's Logabald again, and I'll end here. And yet. As president, this same John F. Kennedy, though still harboring doubts, oversaw a major expansion of American involvement in Vietnam. Even as he steadfastly rejected the urgings to commit combat troops, he affirmed the importance of defeating the Viet Cong insurgency by upping substantially his country's contribution to the war effort. In 1962, vast quantities of the best American weapons, aircraft, and armored personnel carriers arrived in South Vietnam, along with thousands of additional U.S. military advisors. That year, a full field command bearing the acronym MACV, which stands for Military Assistance Command Vietnam, superseded MAAG, which stands for Military Assistance Advisory Group, with a three-star general, Paul D. Harkins, in command. A secret American war was underway. Ostensibly, Americans were serving purely as advisors and never engaging the Viet Cong except in self-defense. In reality, their involvement extended further in the air and on the ground. So I just wanted to quote that because I think there's so much ambiguity here. So I wanted, I want, I was hoping you could maybe respond to that. So on one hand, you have pre-presidential Kennedy essentially fighting the good fight. You know, saying saying what senators would be able to make, and then you have President Kennedy actually increasing involvement in Vietnam. And Logoval actually goes on to say he doesn't think Kennedy would have escalated like Johnson in sixty four, sixty five for a variety of reasons. I don't have to get into, but I just wanted to underline there's this real ambiguity here. So, Aaron, I was hoping you could respond to that. Yeah, the ambiguity was part of Kennedy's strategy. At least that is how it is explained by John Newman who I think did the kind of orthodoxy overturning work, uh, JFK in Vietnam, which I believe he calls deception, intrigue, and and something, something, right? But the, the point of, of it is that it's not just the generals and the, the hawks that are lying. It's also, it's also Kennedy. And Kennedy doesn't wear a, a white hat as the anti-imperialist truth teller in, in any honest story about this. I think he... When he was asked why, after that introduction of a, a lot of advisors, they made every argument possible to get him to uh, put ground troops in Vietnam, and he refused to cross that line. And he was asked, to, but he did do other things like allow the use of defoliants, not Agent Orange, as I understand it. That didn't come until later, but other defoliants that did cause you know problems for, in terms of crops, crop damage, and other health problems. Like who knows? And he was, and they put in all those advisors and aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. And he was asked by someone who wanted the U.S. out of Vietnam why he did that when he didn't think it was going to help so much. Why did he do it anyway? And he told this person, "Well, you can only say no to your national security state so often." Now, but you, you've already established that he's a person who who says things instrumentally because of how he got to be up the president in the first place. So I, I'm not saying any one statement is ironclad proof of the capital T truth of of, of Kennedy, but 
in it with with him resisting the calls as Logoval mentions he resisted those calls in Laos they were telling him that oh you need to do this or it's going to be a t- catastrophe but he went for a neutralist solution in Laos and later and Kennedy 19- and his brother Bobby basically says that later on yes, uh, and he I think says that's that a crucial piece of evidence yeah he Bobby he says, says we would have La- we would have done a Laos in Vietnam basically yeah and da- and Dan Dan told me Dan's told that story many times and he told it to me personally uh, a few years ago just for an audience he he retold it and it was that Bobby Kennedy had said this is a disaster and you know this never would have happened under my brother and he's looking very frustrated and Ellsberg asks him why why were you and your brother so smart about this when we weren't and he said because we were there we were there (laughs) when we saw the French and that he said (laughs) right they they go on this famous trip right in 56 is that the year of the trip uh, no, it was earlier than that. It was, he was it's a with their sister, I think it was 51. Too. It was 1951, and yes, then Edmund Gully in there, it. who was a U.S. Yeah. ambassador, and he told him, man, the French are screwed. Uh, probably, that, he didn't use that language, but, he's, but it was like, basically, this is a hopeless situation. So, Aaron, I think this leads to my, this, this is my question, which is like, I, th- I think it's fair to say that Kennedy is ambiguous. I, I think Logoval is right. Like, I-, I don't think he made a decision at the time of his assassination. I don't think he was going yes or no. I think the, and we could get into the details of like why that argument has convinced me, but could you maybe set the stage as like, that might not, that might not even be problematic for your argument because even if he didn't get, make a decision, they might have presumed that he had made a decision. So what do you, what, what's, your take like what is the state of play within the deep state as as you're presenting it between kennedy and like lemnitzer and etc when you're talking about the vietnam decision you know it, it gets divided into different phases but basically after he makes that decision which is i believe that the actual order is issued uh on it's like exec it's like insam 111 or something and it's on november 22nd 1961 and that's the decision to send in more people and it's an escalation but he because they know that he doesn't necessarily think it's 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 going to help or whatever, the military starts giving him reports of progress and that everything's going great. But it's not. It's not going great at all. And they're giving a second, different, realistic set of support uh, reports to LBJ, which is very interesting. They're basically, because they know that Kennedy has made statements to the effect that if there's not progress, then it's he's going to scale back the effort. Uh, they are giving him... And, and because he's not going to resist ground troops and he had drawn a line there, they're giving him optimistic reports that everything's going fine to just sort of keep things in a holding pattern. And they're telling Johnson things that are the opposite. But eventually he takes, he changes his mind about some things and he, but he realizes how much the national security state is against, is against him deescalating in Vietnam. And so one, he has to do an end run around this and make it so that he's following national security suggestions. And so what he does is, this is something that I think can only be explained as Kennedy attempting to extricate himself, knowing that his national security state is very much opposed to this. And so he sends um, Max Taylor, who's head of the JCS, and Robert and uh, yeah McNamara, Robert McNamara to Vietnam to assess the situation and write a report. And they so they go to Vietnam go around different places, meet people, and then they get off the plane in Washington and they're given this bound report. It's their report, only they didn't write it. It was actually written by uh, General Krulak and L. Fletcher Prouty. L. Fletcher Prouty is played by Donald Sutherland in the movie JFK, and they wrote this entire report. So it could have been called the Krulak Prouty Report if you wanted to be more honest, but if you wanted to be even more honest, it was actually dictated by Robert Kennedy what the report should say, 
And Robert Kennedy was following instructions of his brother. And it recalled for a, sca- a, a phased withdrawal from Vietnam, according to a certain schedule. And so Kennedy, in October, they announce, uh, and, and they announce all planning will be geared towards the withdrawal recommendations. He says all planning. So that's where I would say that Logoval is, is wrong about this because it wasn't conditional. It was a withdrawal. Logoval does talk about this. So, so let me say what he says. So he emphasizes uh, two White House meetings on October 2nd and October 5th, 1963. Uh, and he says, um, the way I interpret, this is uh, reading again, uh, it won't be too long, I promise. The way I interpret a pair of important White House meetings on October 2nd and 5th, 1963, for example, is that JFK at that late hour was still unsure about which way to go in Vietnam. And moreover, that he had not given the withdrawal proposal very much thought. And this is a quote from the meeting, quote, my only reservation about this troop withdrawal, unquote, he says at one point, quote, is that it commits to a kind of a, if the war doesn't continue to go well, it'll look like we were overly optimistic and I don't, I'm not sure we, I'd like to know what benefit we get out of at this time announcing a thousand, unquote. Could this be a ruse on the president's part as proponents of this argument claim, one designed to hide his secret determination to get America out of the conflict? Possibly, but these analysts do not present persuasive evidence to that effect. As for the two NSAMs, the difference between them is slight. 263 signaled no necessary lessening of the American commitment to South Vietnam, while 273, approved by Johnson a few days after Kennedy's death, showed fundamental continuity with the earlier document and with various other high-level missives in October and November, unquote. So again, this isn't to say that Kennedy was dedicated to to escalating, but I think it's to stress really the ambiguity in the autumn of of basically the pre-ZM assassination which as we talked about in our Vietnam special, Patreon listeners, uh, occurred in early November. This is like the fundamental uh, ambiguity. Um, so again, the deep state might have might have been like, we don't even want ambiguity. But I just think that the argument for Kennedy definite withdrawal is not there, regardless of what Bobby says several years later. Yeah, I mean, the 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 document states clearly all planning will be directed towards preparing RVN forces for the withdrawal of U.S. special assistance units and personnel by the end of calendar year 1965. So but all as planning, you know, all planning is, is written in, yeah, he, that, that's, that's Plans the key. That, change. Is the, that is the key. That is the key. He, but he would have to change his mind because the, he, at that point, all planning will be directed towards preparing RVN forces for the withdrawal of U.S. forces. So, so and I agree. I don't think mind. he would have escalated. He may have gone on to change his mind. But it would have been changing his mind from the withdrawal plan that he had already given the green light to. And the part about that you were saying that he's debating, like, I don't see the, you know, the utility of this exactly. But if you notice, it's about the announcement, right? About announcing the troops. And there was a debate about that. So it wasn't, he was, it, it, he, in that statement, at least as I interpret it, he's only, it's, it's dealing with the issue of whether to announce it or not. And that was debated. And eventually they actually do, I think. I think decide on to announce part of it. And it appeared in like the stars and stripes and so on. And what's interesting about this is, and what to me is this, this comes up. I did two hours uh, plus of an interview with James Galbraith and John Newman for the podcast. It's going to be broken up into two episodes. So it's two hours. On Everyone listen, with- American exception, new podcast. Everyone listen. And, and it's, I, in studying and preparing for that and then talking to these guys, even though I've read books on this subject before, I never felt like I really um, quite 
got it the, the same way until doing going through that process. Because if you've taught, you know, the best way to learn something is to like teach. And so I had to prepare for it. But then listening to these two guys, because Newman wrote this book and his book, he talks about this, his book and, and all of the details he unearths, he presents this to Robert McNamara and Robert McNamara is kind of stunned. And he's, he's staring at John and he's looking right through him. It, it, uh, that's what John, the way John describes it, that he's looking past him and he just says, when did I know? When did I know? <laughs> and then and, it's interesting. And it was, all the question these was, are... when did I know they were lying to me? Right. And I mean, I personally think earlier, <laughs> pretty early. Um, but uh, Aaron, I'm going to present the, present the last piece of evidence for Kennedy having not made this decision. Then we'll return to the to the sort of the machinations because I'm very interested in that because I want to hear you comment on this. Um, so um, this is Logoval again suggesting that Kennedy had not made up a decision. Uh, I want to emphasize he's not saying that Kennedy escalated. Quote, most of all, a president determined to quit Vietnam, regardless of the state of the war, would have been more reticent about endorsing a showdown between South Vietnamese leader Diem and dissident generals. From late August onward, that is late August 1963 onward, Kennedy's moves indicate that he had resigned himself to the necessity of removing Diem, though it seems clear that he never intended for Diem to be killed. When on occasion he expressed uncertainty about a coup, it was only because of a fear that it might fail. A large question here is whether JFK understood that American complicity in the coup would increase American responsibility for subsequent developments in South Vietnam, thereby making withdrawal more difficult. The answer remains elusive, in part because neither he nor his advisors appear to have given the matter much thought. Before ZM's ouster, Kennedy seems to have believed that a change in government could actually hasten a U.S. withdrawal. The new leaders in Saigon would implement needed reforms, win increased public backing at the expense of the Viet Cong, and allow the United States to reduce and eventually eliminate its presence. After the coup, he may have continued in this belief, but he also felt that this scenario would, even in the best of circumstances, take many months to materialize. In the short term, JFK understood the American commitment was deeper than ever before, especially in view of the of ZM's murder. In a cable to Lodge on November 6th, Kennedy acknowledged U.S. complicity in the coup and spoke of American quote-unquote responsibility to help the new government succeed. In all likelihood, and this is the big claim, in all likelihood, Kennedy at the time of his death was leaving his Vietnam options open, playing a waiting game. That's what successful politicians do with vexing policy problems, especially when an election looms large on the horizon, they hedge. His decisions on Vietnam since 1961 had vastly increased his nation's presence in the war, but they had usually been compromised decisions between the extremes of an Americanized struggle and an American withdrawal, both of which he had seen as equally unpalatable. On the day before his death, Kennedy told, Mike, uh, told aide Michael Forrestal, who was about to depart for a visit to Indochina, that he wanted to see him again soon in order to plan what to do in South Vietnam. And I just want to end there. I won't read anymore, but that's basically Logoval's arguing that Kennedy knew that the chaos in post-ZM South Vietnam would require at least a few months or a year for the U.S. to remain. And that at the time of, you know, the, the November 22nd, he was not sure, but was inclined to not escalate. What do you have to say about that? Right. The whole issue, I mean, there's a number of issues there. So I'll try to get hit a number of points on this. Um, the, the DM situation was difficult. Kennedy wanted them to get rid of the, the news and, you know, Madam knew, which was his wife and her brother, which were, who were corrupt and, and were brutal towards the Buddhists. 
and, and so on. And he also was um, not wanting them to take some of the steps that they did. In part, one explanation of why he gave the, the green light to the coup planning initially is kind of as you allude to, potentially they could allow, they could put someone in who would be more cooperative, even if they wanted to withdraw, somebody who would ask for a withdrawal. And that is exactly what Robert Kennedy said in that aforementioned conversation with Ellsberg. He says, we would have gotten somebody in there who would have asked us out. Okay, that would have been that would have been the way to orchestrate it, and it wasn't certain if DM was going to be that person. Now, part of the things that some of the things that led up to, I, I believe that it's not at all certain that Kennedy wanted that coup to go forward at all. He planning for it, he had authorized, but some of the steps that precipitated it, like the U.S. cutting uh, an export import bank loan to the country, that was damaging to DM, and Kennedy realized this, and he had never given the green light for that, and he, and the guy that that was responsible for that. If I recall correctly, Kennedy said he, he he said he offered to resign to Kennedy, and Kennedy said, "Ah, you're not worth firing me. Now you're going to owe me." So he wasn't happy about that. And then when the coup was actually given the green light, it was a cable sent by Roger Hillsman and Avril Harriman when Kennedy was out of town. So right, it's the not famous at all. weekend cable, right? Is this this is the weekend cable, right? Right. They're, they're in Cape Cod, I think. Literally, am I misremembering that? Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. I believe that's right. Yeah. yeah. And so this was. It's not. It's it's never been shown that Kennedy like said do it while I'm out of town at all. It's never been. That's but never as been you said, a couple of things I'd like you to respond to this. As you said, not everything's going to be written down. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but uh, but also to me, this more than anything points to the ambiguity. Kennedy gives the planning, but he doesn't want to do it. He says this. He says that, which is what I agree with. I I, I don't think that Kennedy is a Johnson escalation uh, escalationist. But to me, it really seems more ambiguous than the sort of like he was. Kennedy is going to withdraw and we're going to have, you know, peace, peace in our time. That doesn't seem likely to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't there, but somebody was there named Francis Bator and he was Lyndon Johnson's deputy national security advisor. And he cannot be accused of what Logoval would call a withdrawal theorist, you know, of being a withdrawal theorist. And he said that Galbraith is correct that there was a plan to withdraw U.S. forces from Vietnam, beginning with the first thousand by December 1963, and almost all the rest by the end of 1965. President Kennedy had approved that plan. It was the actual policy of the United States on the day Kennedy died. But so just even a, what you said Kennedy, there, he's a, just he's a with Johnson 65, man. right? With 65, the whole thing is the 64-65 post-CM chaos. Right. I mean, that, that's actual, how would Kennedy respond to that, right? That's it's the, question. the actual policy of the United States on the day Kennedy died, which he may have reversed. You can't, I can't say, no, he would never have reversed this policy. What I'm saying is what Fran, what Bator is saying, that it was the policy. Now, what, what Kennedy, I think, and that's where I think Logan is wrong, that it actually was the policy and Kennedy, but Kennedy may have reversed it. You can't prove that either way. So that, that is, I think that that's, I think well, that I think- statement from Bator, and additionally, the three top national security people, Max Taylor of the J- Joint Chiefs of Staff, even McGeorge Bundy and Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, they all eventually said that Kennedy was withdrawing from Vietnam. The top three people who would have been in a position to be aware of the situation all said, yeah, he, he, was, he was doing it. But that. that's also years after, <laughs> years after when Vietnam had gone 
poorly. So, I mean, I think you can't ignore those statements, but as, you know, someone who uses oral history, uh, I wouldn't like trust the Atchison memoir to tell me everything I need to know about Dean Atchison. People oftentimes, you know, when they're giving oral history interviews, want to exculpate themselves and things but along this, these lines. This does not yes, exculpate please. them. This is not exculpate them, though. This is testifying Or a different world interest. or like, you know, if only this didn't happen, you know, I think that, I mean, that, that, that I think Kennedy, Kennedy's assassination did that for a lot of Americans in a well, lot of different, you know, it's a hinge point. Uh, they're te- they're, they, have, <laughs> they were there and they're testifying against interest because it immediately asks like, so especially Robert McNamara, why did you, why did you do this? And McNamara, as I was talking earlier about how Newman presented him with all this information, he's kind of shocked by some of it, but that it's actually John Newman's book that leads McNamara to write his own memoirs. Because he, and in his memoirs, he confirms, not just saying like, oh yeah, Kennedy was going to get out of Vietnam, but he actually talks about the bureaucratic maneuvering that he was doing to do so. And then that he goes on to make that, they make a film related to it, uh, the Earl Morris film, The Fog of War. Bundy doesn't really come around to this point of view until like near, right near his death in the 2000s. Book comes out in 2008. It's like a posthumous memoir by Mm -hmm. Arthur Goldstein. And it's basically, he's presented all this information and McGeorge Bundy says, he says, man, they, they kept me. He was, he was doing that. He didn't let me know these things because he was going around me because he knew I was opposed to this policy. Like he was maneuvering to pull out of Vietnam and cutting me out of the loop because that was how he handled problems. Sometimes he wouldn't try to go over people who were opposed. He would bureaucratically maneuver. And so even Bundy comes to that conclusion. Bundy, the guy who altered in Sam 273, right after Kennedy dies, which allows for the operations that lead to the Gulf of Tonkin incident uh, and and spark the Vietnam War.